Welcome to the Final Girls podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. My name's Anna, I'm the co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you've been following this show for the last couple of weeks, we've been putting out bonus episodes, bonus deep dives into each one of the Fear Street trilogy films. And our final deep dive will be coming this very Saturday, meaning tomorrow, the day after the last installment of the Fear Street trilogy comes on Netflix. And I will be joined by my special guest from the discussion about Fear Street 1994, Isona Barbie Brown. And my guest from the discussion about Fear Street 1978, Dr. Alison Pierce. And combining our forces, we will try to discuss and rip apart and really dive deep into Fear Street 1666 and the Fear Street trilogy as a whole, now that we will have seen the entirety of it. But before that episode lands on this feed on Saturday, I've been using extracts and teasing extracts of my interview with Lee Janiak, the Fear Street director, in the previous episodes. And here is the interview in full. Now, for anyone who is averse to any sort of conversation that might hint at any spoilers for the finale of Fear Street, if you don't want to even intuit anything, maybe revisit this episode once you've seen the entire trilogy. However, this interview is not spoilerific. We don't really go into many details about the ending, um, but if you are extremely allergic to any spoiler territory, give it a miss. If you are not, and you don't really mind, and you really want to hear how the, the trilogy got made, how Lee worked with actors and with her crew and her team, how they shot it, some of the references to horror films and the look and feel, which is very distinctive across all three films, then give it a listen. For now, please enjoy my conversation with Fear Street director Lee Janiak. Lee, really, really lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for uh, for your time. Also, um, great shirt. I know no one can see it, oh. but great shirt. <laughs> Thank you. This will be wasted on audio, but I appreciate it nonetheless. Okay, you'll have to describe it. It's a very cool Nirvana shirt. <laughs> you know, we're going to be talking about all the Fear Street movies, obviously starting with 1994. So I figured, you know, we have to get... Keep it in the theme. I like theme. it. It's good. Yeah. It's really good. I'm going to ask you questions about all three of the films, but going to try to keep it um, spoiler free for the listeners. Um, so I wanted to start off by asking you about your own personal relationship with horror. Sure. Um, I think my earliest memories started with going to a blockbuster video when I was like in fourth grade with some of my friends. We had a sleepover party planned and we wanted to run a horror movie and we rented the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is not exactly a horror movie <laughs> and very confusing to someone in fourth grade. I was like, what am I feeling for him? I don't know. <laughs> like, all, all the things. So that was my earliest kind of thing. And then I spent a lot of like the late 80s sneakily watching like Child's Play, Nightmare on Elm Street, kind of all of those great slasher movies. Psycho was one of the first ones. And then later, as I was able to become a filmmaker, 
I um I never really thought like oh I'm going to be a horror director that's what I'm going to do it was kind of like what is the story that I want to tell how do I want to tell these mm-hmm. stories what makes sense and I think the great thing about horror to me is that it can be fun it can be crazy you're pushing kind of audience expectations of of everything and and you live in a very uncertain world which I love and then you can like make it about something too so that to me is the brilliance of horror and why I love it um and why I keep doing it <laughs> Listen, I can only thank you because I also very much love Honeymoon, uh, your previous film. So, um, getting onto Fear Street more specifically, um, I have to ask you as well. I grew up with the R.L. Stein books. Were you a fan of his books before you signed on to this project? Yeah, I was. I was a teenager in the '90s, and so I, I also kind of grew up reading the Fear Street books. And um, they, I remember going to the local library and they would be on this like turnstile and you would just, the, I remember the covers were amazing. Like the, it was just so kind of exciting and subversive and fun and, and kind of like there was the edge of like sex around the edges of the, of the book. So I really liked them and I was like very, very excited when I, when my producers kind of approached me and said, we're trying to figure mm-hmm. out how to do this, um, on screen. So yeah. So kind of getting into the production of Fear Street and the trilogy of it, really, um, I read that it it was a very quite a lengthy process. Um, how long did it take from that initial approach of your producers to, well, now? And like, how did you sustain the, the momentum creatively? It's really crazy. So I think that they first had a conversation with me in 2017. So early in 2017. And then I think by the end of the summer of 2017, um, I was working with my fellow writers and we were starting to kind of break the story and figure it out. And, and, um, and so the process was kind of normal for a while, like normal in that it's not really normal to be making three movies and moving forward with three movies at once, but relatively normal, I would say. And then um, in 2018, 2018, we got a green light. And so we were prepping in Los Angeles and then we started prepping in Atlanta, basically the beginning of 2019. We shot through 2019, started post, pandemic happened, that kind of shut us down for a while and then we've been chugging ahead. But you know, it's, the work was so much that, and, and the, the other like lucky thing about it is because it was three movies, it was, mm-hmm. I think, maybe easier to keep staying engaged because there was always like, well, in this world, we're doing this thing. In this era, we're doing this thing. So it was, I feel like, lucky in that. Um, having the three really let the time go faster than it, it probably would have otherwise. And and can you talk a little bit about the well the event style of the of the release of the trilogy, and like how do you think it uh, it will benefit viewers and and the story? I think it's so so exciting to kind of be able to do this thing, which I think is a weird hybrid between film and what is traditional television. Um, it was one of the reasons that I was super excited about the project in the first place because we are trying to tell movies, we're telling a, a complete story, but then we're also driving mm-hmm. forward. I, we thought a lot about each movie as being kind of like the end of a season of television, basically. Um, and I think that the ability on Netflix to kind of release this in a new way where you still have that event thing of like, ooh, it's Friday, like another Fear Street is coming, but not like too long, because I also like to have instant mm-hmm. gratification. So I think it's kind of like the perfect formula, but I'm really excited for mm-hmm. audiences to to kind of get into it and see it. And then, you know, maybe when they get to the end, they'll be like, ooh, I'm going to go and look at the, the Easter eggs that were in the first movie again and things like that. So, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's exactly what I did because I've watched them uh, for the second time now and like looking at yeah, the, you look at the other and stuff. little wings. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I wanted to ask you like about, well, the actual worlds that you build that are so distinct in all three films. Um, and kind of starting with, you know, in 1994, there's such a distinct neon soaked look for the film. And then it's much more summery and breezy in the second one. And the third one is like radically different stylistically, um, not just because of the, of the time it's set in. So can you talk a little bit about the visual building of the worlds and like how did you collaborate with your cinematographer um Caleb yeah Caleb and I spent a lot of time obviously in prep discussing like how do we keep these movies feeling fresh and exciting and and being true to kind of each of the time periods and so for the 90s we definitely looked to kind of those those movies of the mid 90s so Scream I know what you did last summer. Those were all like kind of tonal influences as well. But we looked at the filmmaking too, which tended to be like more traditionally kind of studio filmmaking. So a lot more of like dolly track and kind of locked off frames, things like that. Um, and, and then, you know, Caleb and I, like we kind of created this, we tried to like lift it up a little. We like, we wanted to be colorful. We wanted to be in these like cool color spaces in the grocery store, in the mall. And so we kind of bumped it up and stylized it a little bit. And then with the 70s, it was the same thing. We always kind of looked back at those movies that were the, the touchstones of that era. And then we tried to find ways that we could kind of like, yeah, take it up a notch. So it was fun in the 70s to kind of live in the sun for a while and to have it be very colorful. <laughs> we talked about creating a look. Uh, my colorist Skip is also amazing. We put a lot of like grain mm -hmm. into it to make it feel like a little more like gritty and immediate with the 70s feel. Um, and then the 1600s to me was was interesting. Um, I, I wanted the movie to feel immediate and like kind of mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, not have any distance between the audience and, and like what you might have when you're watching a period piece like more traditionally. And so we talked a lot about just like living in a full handheld world for, for camera and always being really tied to like character POV to try to make mm -hmm. it feel like modern and kind of connected. Um, so that was the, that was the, ex and then the palette obviously of the 1600s, we wanted to live in a very organic um, kind of neutral territory. So when we did have a pop, of orange from a flame or blood, it really felt like, mm -hmm. oh shit, <laughs> like that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and you shot all three films simultaneously, is that correct? That is correct. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and, yes. <laughs> yes. Can you can you describe a little bit that process, especially since just hearing you describe the the visual thinking and the visual mapping of all three, you know, eras and all three films they sound like well they are kind of like sound like radically different types of shoots yeah so we basically the the plan which we did keep to mostly was we shot mm -hmm. all of the 94 stuff first so anything that was 94 in all three movies was the first mm -hmm. chunk and that was something like 60 days 65 days something like that then we moved into 1666 and we did the village stuff that was another 30 some days and then we finished with the camp as the last one so we kind of chunked it out like that so it was like 90s mm -hmm, 1666 mm -hmm. 70s but as we got like a little deeper into the shoot it wasn't always possible to be completely done so we had to do mm -hmm. some 90s a little later when we because we were on stage so at that point, we had already done some of the 1666. So my my actors and then also the crew who had like 
drastically changed our shooting style, had to re-engage with what that 90s mm-hmm, world was, mm-hmm. which is a totally different thing. Um, I think it was really fun, but it got cra- it got crazy when we were when we were like flip flapping between the different. And then we were also like, and then in the seventies, the character is like, it was a lot, but it was great. Did you did you have to have like a really big, you know, timeline map on a wall somewhere where you just knew where everything was happening? The timeline actually that was like mostly, unfortunately, just in my head um, and and the script. But when we got into post. That was uh-huh. huge. So we had, like, in kind of our edit bay, Rachel, my editor, mm-hmm. and I, we were lucky to have, we had basically printed out um, a frame from each scene in all of the movies. And it was like, so movie one was all on this wall. And it was like, you know, hundreds mm-hmm. of, like, um, to represent each scene, like a lot of them. And then movie two and then movie three. So we could go back and forth and be like, oh, remember, we have footage from that there. That we could, so we could see it all because it, it did start to get to be like, oh, this is so much. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to move on to talk a little bit more uh, in depth about the characters. And one of the things that struck me from the very beginning, from the very first, um, from the very first Fear Street, was that it, it's all about the outsiders. It's all the bunch of supporting characters and the slashers that we know and we love that would usually get murdered pretty much early on, would never get their love interest. Um, and horror, one of the reasons why I've always loved it, it's always been fertile ground for outsider stories. And I was wondering how did you want to approach these these figures, very familiar figures for horror fans in a different way with Fear Street? I, I think that I'm, I'm glad that you kind of felt that and saw that. That was one of the big like kind of central things that I thought about when I when I decided to try to take on the movies in the first place, because mm-hmm. I feel like there's been a million amazing slasher movies. And so it was kind of like, why? What is the why of why should we do this now? And what can we do with this that makes it feel new and not just like we're only interested in like nostalgia and homage? And and to me, that that lay exactly with the characters and giving these characters, like you said, that are traditionally outsiders that traditionally would not be lead. You would not have a, a you know, a young black queer woman anchoring your movie if it was in 1992 or 1994 and certainly not in the 70s. So the ability to kind of give all of these characters a chance to be heroes, to be protagonists, and then and also because it was built into kind of the the DNA of, of, the, of the story. Like it was the story mm-hmm. of Shadyside. Shadyside is a city of outsiders. So I don't know, that was really satisfying to me and really kind of what made me the most excited about the project period is that we're giving voice to characters that like you said, usually are dead very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I wanted to ask you kind of about, about working with, with your young cast, um, especially since they're, you know, in some cases, uh, working with several different characters, uh, and not just the one. But, uh, how did you, how did you feel, how did you know when you found them? And like, how important was it for you to, for them to build chemistry with one another, even if perhaps they're not sharing that much screen time? It was, it was really, really lucky. We all, the only kind of chemistry reads that we did were for Dina mm-hmm. and Sam, and then for okay, Cindy okay. and Ziggy. Those are the only ones that we actually mm-hmm. did like traditional chemistry reads. And the rest was kind of like, just hoping 
that the vibes that you're feeling that you're getting when you're reading these people are going to like translate. And so like when I found Benji to play Josh, um, mm-hmm. I think at that point I had already cast Kiana as Dina and I was like, they're amazing. I think that this is going to work, but it wasn't until we got on set that kind of, that mm-hmm. it really, it was very lucky. Like they all were very talented, very prepared and, um, and, and gelled. Like the chemistry that they have in real life as friends, I think it, it, mm-hmm. it like shows on screen. Same thing with Simon and who, Fred, who plays Simon, and Julia, who plays Kate. Like everyone kind of just got along, and you could feel that. And it was the same in the second movie too. Um, but it was it was that thing that you don't know, you don't fully know until you get there. So we were lucky. Lucked out for sure. And um, on that note, actually, I wanted to ask about this very distinct separation that I felt between the teen world and the adult world that gets much more gets increasingly more complicated um in the in the second and the third film when we find out more about nick when we find out more about ziggy um can you talk about balancing that between your your young and your uh, older cast and as well with the story yeah i think it it's funny when so the first days that i shot with ash who plays adult nick good and then solomon Mm -hmm. good um i had only been shooting with the kids for a really long amount of time and I was like oh right no this is I remember now what it's like to work with a full like adult (laughs) and it was kind of like jarring at first that I I I remember being like (laughs) just being like and may I do another take you know what I mean like being a lot like nicer as far as how I was like framing things for him um honestly it was it was it was not like very different like depending on like who we were mm-hmm. shooting with because like I said the kids were so professional that it wasn't a, it wasn't a thing, um, but it, it was it was a nice balancing act to kind of find as far as like keeping the adults on the fringes of the first movie and then slowly mm-hmm. figuring out like how do we make it feel real that now they're dipping into the story that now they're becoming a part of the narrative so yeah. And there's something that you mentioned earlier, kind of about shady side, and there's something like about the um, the legacy of certain choices or certain traumas, and kind of how this builds up and festers, and these two towns and the rivalry that they have with one another, um, just because, and kind of really bleeds through, especially at the beginning of the of the first film. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of this this idea of cyclical? and repetitive trauma and horror that comes up. Yeah, I mean, that the idea of like generational trauma here was really, really interesting and kind of that like thematic thing that we wanted to deal with was this this feeling of of what it means to be told by the world that things are not going to get better and that you're you're mm-hmm. never going to get out. Like that felt like a very kind of familiar thing um and especially I think for outsiders. Um, and it was important to the DNA of Shady Side, and we we kind of like thought about the killers as being these representations of systemic rot, and and kind of corruption. And so the idea that we were able to kind of do this over generation after generation after generation, I don't know. It was just exciting, and it felt like something that you know normally we wouldn't get to do. We would have to spend you know how many more years before we made a sequel mm-hmm. or whatever. So it felt like a unique opportunity to to kind of say, okay, this is the story. That there was, I forget what the idiom is. It's something like you know, history is told by the victors or, or whatever yeah. it is. And so, mm-hmm. or, and and so in this, we were able to kind of show that, like actually show in real time how these different events happen and then how they got twisted, 
and then mm -hmm. basically say like, and then this is the truth. So it was very exciting to me. And um, I want to pick up on on Sarah Freer in a bit, but uh, you mentioned the killers, and I just have to ask because I loved in the in 1994 all the different designs and the glimpses of the history of the killers of Shady Side. So I was wondering how how did you kind of what references or influences or what was the this is a weird way to phrase the question. I'm sorry. What was like the the tapestry of serial killer and horror film influences that went into that? I mean, so much <laughs> that it was like, <laughs> it was very dark. It was a very dark place during prep. I spent a lot of time with the other writers. We thought about kind of what are the um, kind of the archetypes that we want to be, you know, visiting first. So mm -hmm. obviously Skull Mask came from this like, this idea of this kind of Halloween masked type you know, character that we saw a lot in the 90s. And then with the 70s, we wanted to be more the traditional axe murderer, like that kind of like man in the woods type thing. Um, but then, you know, there's not a lot. There's not a lot of slashers that happen in other time periods, it turns out. So mm -hmm. we kind of looked at what the, um, like, kind of what the archetype might be of just like, the image of what that that era might be, <clears throat> and then we thought about how can we twist that? How can we like start to hint at a backstory without mm -hmm. like fully, fully like marrying ourselves to like exactly what happened, but like give a little bit there, like start to live. So Ruby was really interesting because we liked the idea of this girl who was just kind of like a little edgy, a little like you know kind of out there, and then got turned by the witch into this this killer who totally snapped. The milkman is one of my favorites. It creeps me out so much. I think he like is the creepiest to me of all of them. Um, <laughs> and maybe because I know like what my backstory is for him about killing housewives. Um, but uh, and Billy Barker was fun. We looked at depression era things, and there was a lot of time mm -hmm. spent looking at masks from the different eras. Um, the mask that the guy we call him the shame killer because it's a mm -hmm. shame mask that they used to put on people, kind of in I think 17th century Germany. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we did like lots of different research to kind of start to fill out those worlds. Yeah, I mean that sounds like both fun and mildly traumatizing research. Totally, totally. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> and and I, if you can share, could you share the backstory of the milkman? Yeah, no, the milkman. So the idea with the milkman was that he had been a vet that had been in World War II, and that's mm -hmm. where he got burned. That was the idea that he got like horribly misfigured, and he came back, and he was kind of um, shunned by being like, uh, you know, the person that made you uncomfortable because of how they looked outwardly. And then mm -hmm. when the witch turned him he started targeting these women who felt like they were the um, they were the ones that were like looking at him weird, clutching their purses when he was around prior to the turn. And so he he kind of mm -hmm. um, focused on them and and kind of um, you can see that he has like a bit of a pervert vibe, like in the movie, like he's he like licks Ziggy sometimes. He's smelling. He's kind of creepy. So there was a there was a sexual element to him, too, that we didn't mm -hmm. obviously go into because it felt like a little dark. But that was that was there, too. I mean, I think each one of those killers deserves their standalone um, um, spinoff. Spin 100%. 100%. 100%. <laughs> but I wanted to talk about The Witch specifically, about Sarah Freer. And that was such a wonderful surprise because I'll be honest, I didn't expect the supernatural element to the slasher going in first. Um, so I was wondering how you, how you approach balancing to quite distinct um, and, you know, very trope filled horror types, you know, the witch and then the slasher movie? 
Um, you know, it was it was the kind of also I think the the fact that we had the three movies let us do that. Let us find a way that we could. Again, I said it a little bit before about the outsider mm-hmm. element being one thing that like made me feel like we could update the genre. The other thing was like having killers, but then also making them largely supernatural and undead. And I think you know one of the things about the opening of '94, which is obviously stealing from Scream, like left and right, um, <laughs> was was that at the end of that sequence we would unmask uh-huh. our killer. We would say like, mm-hmm. no, 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 but all bets are off here. Like, yes, this is where, where we come from and what we love, but now there's something different happening here. Um, so yeah, so I think that it was it was because we had these three movies we could also like talk about this idea of like there's a town myth about this evil witch and what does that mean and how did she, why is she doing this and kind of the whole idea of like disturbing someone's grave is the, all of these are very familiar tropes and so because we had the space we could twist it into something new which was really kind of the key i think here <laughs> and and can you talk a little bit about um sarah fair as a character who we don't really meet until the very last film Yeah, I mean, without like kind of dipping into too much spoilery territory, mm-hmm. I think that it was a really interesting thing to create the specter of the witch. So the idea of the witch, Sarah Fear, is always mm-hmm. hovering over Shady Side, and it's always kind of like this this kind of urban legend that is haunting the town that everyone knows about the witch. Everyone talks about the witch, and she's a perpetual scapegoat. Um, for everything bad that happens in the, these towns, and and obviously part of the pleasure of the movies is the kids realizing, oh shit, like this is real, but not really mm-hmm. knowing like the full reasons why Seraphir became the specter of the witch, why that was the story that ended up getting told. Um, so yeah, so I think that I don't know. It was just um, it, it was it was an interesting balancing act to keep that like heavy thing. There, mm-hmm. just like in quick flashes, uh, I looked at the ring a lot for for how they kind of like tell the little bits and pieces of what happened with Samara, um, and that was really mm-hmm. inspiring. Um, and then ultimately to be able to like tell her full, real human story in the third movie, I think was like awesome. So, yeah, and and, and it certainly kind of was. Um... A, a different take on stories that I'm very partial to and very familiar with, and I wanted to to ask you as well, kind of going back, well, more to the to the '70s uh, film and to 1994 as well, and it's about the music, really, which I think is such a good way, instant way of setting the scene, setting the mood, and placing us in a time. So, can you talk a little bit about how you build those soundtracks? And kind of how important were they both for the story and uh, the production? Yeah, the music was huge. It existed before the scripts. I think that I started Ooh. making playlists. Like one of the first things that I did mm-hmm. when I met with the producers was I I made a playlist for the '70s and the '90s, and I put it on a little flash drive, and then put it in a like a cassette tape player with like a little thing that like <laughs> I you know like the Dear Sam one in '94. Yeah. I think I did like Fear Street with like magazine things, and I was. Fully 16 again, um, but so that was kind of the first like pass at the playlist that I made, and mm-hmm. then as we got into you know writing and production, the playlist grew and grew, and then I share those with cast, I share those with crew, because for me, that's exact, that's like the easiest way to communicate both tone and place mm-hmm. and time um, to to the audience, and and you know there was time like spent kind of crafting, like we wanted all of the songs, and I think we we came pretty close to doing it. To be able to like actually like 
say something thematically about like like be there for a reason and not just for a needle drop mm-hmm. um, and and that was really exciting to me and we, we also were able to do really cool things like we used Sweet Jane the Cowboy Junkies version in 94 mm-hmm. and then in we the Velvet Underground version is playing when Ziggy and Nick are kind of in the science cabin together and you know the my favorite one and the first one that existed in the script is the man who sold the world and the Nirvana version and then the Bowie version um, and all of these were very expensive and very mm-hmm. kind of like scary as I'm like in post, like putting these movies in. I'm like, oh man, like we really need this song. And, you know, luckily Netflix was amazing and supported us and kind of did what we needed to do to, to make the world full because of the music. Mm. And I mean, you know, if this ever gets released in vinyl, I'm 100% buying. Well, we're doing, they're doing vinyl for the score, which Marco Beltrami did. So he, there's going to be three different vinyls for, for each movie, which I'm super, super excited about. So oh hopefully, God. like, and those are going to be amazing because the score is also incredible yeah. and such a feat. Um, we recorded it in London at Abbey Road and at Air. Uh-huh. Um, and, but, but I'm hoping for, for vinyl across the board. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I wanted to ask you a little bit, uh, about the horror elements. Um, cause I think especially in 94, but also 78 really really push the the gore even further i'd say that some of the the 90s slashers did um so i wanted to kind of ask you like was there was there a particular i don't know limit especially kind of shooting with a young cast or how far did you want to push the the gorier elements of the film i wanted to push it really far (laughs) (laughs) i um i in a part of it was actually because, okay, so again, slasher movies, yes, gory, all of the mm-hmm. things. But like you said, it does push beyond, I think, beyond what mm. like you saw in the 90s. And then in the 70s, too, and I think also the 70s because they were using a, a, what is now an antiquated like you know practical effects thing. It was bloody. It's just a little different. But yeah. in any case, I to me, it was important that the gore was as bad as it was so that you were always having fun in the movies, but there was also this element of like, no, 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 but there's like real violence happening here. There's real terrible, evil shit going on in this town, and we're not going to sugarcoat it just because you you like the characters or you like the world that they're in. Um, so keeping that balance of kind of... Um, I think about The Sopranos. I think The Sopranos did that amazingly, which was that you're having so much fun with these guys, and then they're just like mm-hmm. pulling teeth out of someone's head. So I think like keeping that balance and reminding the audience that you're taking pleasure in this kind of insane, gratu- like ugh, fucked up situation was important. I love the reference. And because I, I know we're running out of time, I just wanted to ask you, what do you hope um, audiences take away from from the Fear Street trilogy as a whole after they finished watching the whole three films? Um, I think that my my hope is that audiences are like, oh, yes, why haven't we seen more movies that have these characters alive in them. Like, why can't we have more characters that are, are uh, more stories that are being carried by queer characters or black characters or Asian American characters or whatever it may be? That to me is really important. And then also that they're fun. That's like the thing. Like, the, I think it's that combo of like, look, we can have these stories and also they can be fucking awesome. And I, that, that to me is the thing of just like taking away fun and like, for sure. Amazingly. 
thank you so much for your time and for sharing a little bit more about these films. And I look forward to people watching them. Thank you. I look forward to listening.